Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. In Your Head Radio has a special guest today, Dr. Mark Borg, and he is a community psychologist and psychoanalyst. He's a founding partner of the Community Consulting Group and a supervisor of psychotherapy at the William Allenson White Institute. He has written extensively about the intersection of psychoanalysts and the community crisis intervention. He now is in private practice in New York City, but he attended graduate school at the California School of Professional Psychology, where he earned both his MA and PhD in a dual track program in clinical and community psychology. While he was there, he served on a four-year community empowerment project that was developed in South Central Los Angeles in the wake of the 92 riots. Also at that time, he was conducted individual and group psychotherapy at the AIDS Services Foundation in Orange County. And he may be a California boy for school, but he's in New York City now. But California lives in a soul because, Mark, I hear you surf every chance you get. <laughs> Indeed. And as a matter of fact, uh, we're going surfing tomorrow morning. Uh, crack of dawn. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I have to tell you, I had just as much fun watching my clients come in and see your book on my desk as I did reading it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> well, it was interesting because the first time that it had just come, it was sitting on my desk and a client comes in and said, "That what's that book? And I said, well, it's a book. Are you, you know, don't be a dick. And he said, well, are you a dick? And I said, well, sometimes. I said, <laughs> no, no, Lee, you're not. And I said, yeah, I am. Everybody <laughs> is. Don't you think everybody is at some time? I absolutely do. I mean, because I really describe dick not as something we are. I don't say you're a dick, I'm a dick. I say it's something we do. It's a set of behaviors. I even go so far as to consider it a, a psychological defense against anxiety and insecurity. And I think at times we all sort of implement this dick behavioral routine. Um, so, well, I yes. Think, I think more people, you know, looked at that book and they thought, well, she's she does have her moments. Um, so just tell me, what inspired you to write this book? Well, the, the, the real inspiration for this book comes from, a pro, from another project I've been involved in for the last, this is our 10th year, and it's called the Irrelationship Project, and it's myself, Dr. Grant Brenner, and Danny Barry, and, and we're a trio of practitioners who've been writing about intimacy over the last 10 years. Uh, we've written, we have a blog on psychology today, and we've, we've written two books, and we've just gotten a contract for the third, and and the three of us um, writing about intimacy have also had a lot of experiences of, of having to grapple with intimacy. And, and, and I have to tell you, we were at a business meeting at our favorite restaurant in the East Village, New York, talking about, you know, the, the second book, actually, called Relationship Sanity. And, and, and in the middle of this meeting, I just started feeling so angry. I just started feeling so, you know, like almost as if all the anger I'd had over all the years of our relationship that hadn't really been dealt with in this moment, I suddenly felt righteous. 
And then I felt indignant. And then I felt like it was absolutely my obligation to put one of these two guys in their place. And I unloaded in public. And I, I, I swear to you, Lee, I, I, I could have seen myself floating above the table, looking at myself, acting like such an entitled jerk. I, 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 at that moment, I said, if I allow myself to act like this, I am going to destroy things are important to me. And at that moment, I, I, I undertook the journey to write this book. I mean, the book is actually an instruction manual to myself because I never want to treat another person like that again. So, so I am like, uh, you know, I am, uh, you know, what is it? Uh, ground zero for, for dickery here. Well, I think that's, you know, I think that's a great story because how do we learn things, you know, and how do we teach things after we learn from ourselves? I've learned some of the best lessons for myself. I have the best come to Jesus meetings with myself at times. And it sounds like that's kind of what you did. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and again, it's funny, the sort of uh, mystical, spiritual overtones, because it, it did have that feeling of uh, uh, perhaps even uh, some some voice, some some power greater than myself intervening right there to say, Mark, like, look, you know, this is a group of guys. And, yeah, you're 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 all sort of king of your own castle. And we, we all are sort of really um, you know, caught up in our own personal and family lives. But we've come together to, to create something. And and in order to make room uh, for each one of us, it, it, it like you said, Lee, I think uh, we're suggesting that we have to also make room for the parts of ourselves that we don't like so much because those parts are coming with us, too. You know, I, I the book has a lot to do with, uh, you know, accepting those parts of ourselves so that we don't act them out. It, it's not that we're not justified. Sometimes we do get our feelings hurt. We do really get sad uh, and scared. But it's if we are able to be aware of that, then it's much more likely that we're going to have control over how we express ourselves. Well, I'm curious, how did that one act out affect the relationship? Because this was a long time relationship you've had with these guys. You've been writing books with them. Yeah, yeah, actually that. So we've been writing since 2010. We came together. Um, and if I really were being honest, so I might as well be, this is the second group of people who came together in a writing project because I, I you know, there's a reason I wrote this book. I hate to admit it, but, you know, I, I kind of had a meltdown in the first group that tried to come together. Uh, <laughs> in fact, we were then writing a project called... Um, Human antidepressant, and it was about uh, a, a kind of caretaking dynamic that the person who's doing the caretaking gets really, really righteous and upset about how they're doing all the pulling and they're doing all the legwork and they're doing all the giving and the other people are taking advantage and all this, only to realize that, you know, it's the human antidepressant who actually operates to not let other people contribute to them. They, they, the giving actually works as a defense against accepting anybody's offerings, accepting what other people have to offer, accepting that other people need to be able to contribute in order to feel like what they have to give is valuable. And so Irrelationship was um, the, the book that that became. And interestingly, it was not just about a human antidepressant doing that to somebody. It was about a human antidepressant doing it with 
other people in groups. So interesting to me, you know, the group that, uh, that Danny and Grant and I formed was coming together so that I wouldn't be a human antidepressant, so I wouldn't get so resentful, so I wouldn't convince myself that uh, I was doing all the work, and it, which was delusional. <laughs> Well, I noticed in the book, you know, you offer some really good advice. I mean, exercises that people can go through mm. to kind of help them identify their dickery. Yeah. Are, are these exercises you use with yourself? They're, they are exercises that I um, <laughs> had to sort of test run with these guys. I mean, you asked sort of what the outcome. I'm, I didn't exactly answer. I, I went up back on a little further back in history. Um, yes. You know, the guys and I started uh, really, um, impl you know, implementing, making use, experimenting with some of these tools, uh, and they really, you know, they they allowed me to do, you know, what twelve step people called uh, call amends. So it wasn't just coming back and saying I'm sorry. It was really actively putting together tools to help ensure that I that we would not behave that way again. So did they contribute to the book, or were they just? kind of the, the subject matter for it <laughs> that well, it, more so the the subject matter in this book um but simultaneously while i was working on this book we've been actually working on a third year relationship book that sort of covers more aspects of what um irrelationship dynamics look like uh internally what they look like in the individual most of the first two books are really about relationships and the third book like this book is, is more um is sort of accessible to the individual and this this book is definitely because the subtitle of the, the the don't be a dick book is change yourself change your world mm -hmm. so it, it really is about our relationship with ourselves setting the groundwork for how we're going to relate to the world. And I use the word world kind of uh, interchangeably with other people. Well, it's interesting because some of the conversations that I alluded to in the beginning, you know, I'll, I'll never forget one of my clients says, well, you know, I don't see you being a dick to anybody else. And I said, well, you know, you can be a dick to yourself, too. Yeah, absolutely. And and that, the look on his face was just like, what? So don't you think that there are different ways that you can apply what you call in your book, dickery? Yeah, I, I absolutely do. And I think you're really hitting on what I, uh, what for me is one of the more important aspects of the book is that so many of these things, that ways that we're being dicks to ourselves, the dickery, so many of them are going on below the level of consciousness. See, we don't realize we're so justified in some of our behaviors. We're so convinced that it's somebody else's fault. That's, that's why I think the, the real kicking in the door to dickery, the real excuse is, is that righteous indignation. Anytime I'm convinced that it's completely and totally someone else's fault, I am opening the door for that person or even people, if it's a group or family uh, or relationship, to actually scapegoat me as the dick. Ironically, the more convinced I am that it's someone else, the more I act like a dick myself. You know, what I've noticed is the way that people communicate and the communication what I've seen is when I'm being a dick my communication is really not effective mm -hmm. and I'm using you know the way that I'm trying to communicate I'm creating roadblocks for myself 
Do you talk about that in your book? Yeah, ab- absolutely. In fact, I have a you know, bullet-pointed list of ways that we create those roadblocks. Um, but I really love listening to you because I, I just love that it, it, it's so clear to me that already you know, you you're just um, you're really doing with the book what I hoped gently to invite. Uh, the reader to do, which is to, to use this as a mirror, but to let it reflect back to you things about yourself that aren't so awful. They are, they're only awful when they get exaggerated. They're only awful when I, you know, when I put myself in that righteous um, p- position and then, you know, justify my terrible behavior. That certainly does not sound like what you're doing. Well, I'm certainly trying not to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, because it's funny, you, you asked about tools. There's a, there's um there's a, a thing called, there's a, a quiz. It's literally called the Dick Quiz. And one, one time this um, radio show, there's some radio show with these five hosts, and they sent me all these characters. They all answered the Dick Quiz. They all sent their answers back to me. And I got on the show, and they, they said to me, they said, okay, so who's the biggest dick? You know, you've done all this evaluation. Who's the biggest? And I said, look, I said, here's the truth. I said, anybody who's willing to take that test, anybody who's willing to put themselves out there, anybody who's willing to share that information with other people who really matter to you, that person has already gone such a long way in confronting their own dickery. You know, dicks, real dicks, you know, when you're really caught up in the dick mode, you will, cannot see yourself. You will not. Being a dick is believing that other people are the problem. So no matter what you're doing or how you're treating other people, it's not your problem. It's theirs. Exactly. Exactly. And that and that goes to one of the primary. It's an early you know defense mechanism, which is projection. And projection is the defense where I see everything that I hate and can't tolerate and won't accept about myself in other people. So the dick can be very, very caught up in projection. And the problem, because it's a psychological defense, it tends to lessen our experience of anxiety. So if it works to lessen our anxiety, unfortunately, we'll keep it up. We'll keep projecting that stuff. We'll walk around the world believing everybody else in the world is a dick. And, and, and it, of course, if you follow that to its conclusion, what you find out is that the real dick, the one who puts on this behavior and, and, and implements it everywhere they go, is a very, very lonely person. Oh, I would imagine so. I mean, what does that do to your relationships? What does that do to your friends? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you're with your family, I mean, we all have family members that... We would prefer to see only at once a year um, <laughs> yes. for a short period of time. Yes. But and I I feel so sad for those people because it is lonely. It's so lonely. It, 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 it's just the ultimate. The, the way, at least, that I'm describing Dick is the psychological defense mechanism that operates against insecurity and anxiety. It, it, the problem with it is exactly as we're saying it, is that it works so well. It's so convincing. So again, if you live in a world full of hostility, where every single person in your life has been drained of value, well, you're not taking any real emotional risk to be in any kind of relationship, but nobody in your life can really matter. Well, if nobody in your life really matters, do you? Because, I mean, I always say you can't take care of your of other people until you take care of yourself. 
Yeah, I think that's such a good point. I, I keep coming back throughout the book um, to the to the really important distinction as well to the difference between you know making use of a, a psychological defense and actually experience something because psychological defenses say being a dick um, a projection it doesn't actually get rid of the anxiety it doesn't actually get rid of the fear it doesn't actually get rid of the pain what it gets rid of and here's the real kicker of the book it gets rid of the awareness of those things. So I'm still hurt. I'm still angry. I'm still anxious. Everybody else knows it except me. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. who's it hurting? It's hurting you. Yeah, it doesn't wind up hurting anybody else in the long run because people around the dick actually learn to avoid the dick. They learn to keep a distance. And they and, and in a funny way, in a family, let's say like given the Christmas example or the holiday season, I mean, you, you invite the dick to the dinner table and the dick will do you the great favor of being the scapegoat for everything else that's wrong in the family. <laughs> It's nice to have one of those it's, occasionally. It's great. And I think in some funny way, probably most families, most uh, most jobs, most most uh, educational institutes. I mean, people, th this is a category, again, I don't say this is what you are. I say this is what you do. But if you do it enough, then you will get that label and it will be very difficult to work your way back out of that. Well, it is. You know, growing up, my mom always said, you are what you eat. <laughs> you are what you think. And at mm. that time, I thought, mm. and, you, and the way you act, the behavior mm. that you continue to put out there almost does become who you are. I think that's true. I mean, I think that's very much kind of what um, a persona is. You know, a persona is a set of actions or maybe it's a role that you bring to each different relationship. And if if you, there's some fluidity in how you in your own self-experience and you can kind of be this person in this relationship. I, I'm this person in my relationship with my kids. I'm this person in my relationship with my with my partner. I'm this person at work. But if, if, if everything is very rigid and your actions are all defensive, like the dick, then all of your relationships also kind of become, like you said, who you are. I don't believe it's true. I don't believe, I believe that a self is a very fluid entity. I believe that a self is expansive and open to learning and being transformed. But I also believe that that's a scary process. So a lot of times we psychologically defend ourselves against the very things that would lead to our growth. And I think the dick is an example of someone who's very well protected against things that they probably would, if they really thought about it, actually want. Well, that being said, do you think that person would be someone that would pick the book up and read it? Well, <laughs> okay. So <laughs> I, as, as I was writing the book, you know, I was having discussions with people who wouldn't – there were some people who just wouldn't believe that, that someone wanted to publish a book like that. They thought that it was so kind of provocative and, and, and funny and, and all kinds of things. Um, but as, as, as I talked to people about the book, I can't tell you how many people started – you know, calculating in their head. They're like, okay, you know, I'm going to give this book to this person. I'm going to give one to that person and one to that person. I said, great. But before you do, read it. Because the kind of, because the kind of dick I'm talking about is the kind of person who sees dicks all around them. They see that every everybody else is a dick. And if you're willing to read the book and if you're willing to look at your own dick aspects, then 
you probably won't wind up giving that person the book to anyone else. You probably would be grateful that you took a look at yourself so that you could interact with other people. And you will be still sad for the, for the actual person that you think is a dick who probably, right, is not going to pick up this book. Well, it is a great self-reflection tool, and I think that sometimes we need a way to self-reflect. That's one thing I noticed, the exercises that are in the book. That's really helpful. You know, I'm a CBT, cognitive Mm. behavioral therapy, so Mm. I'm looking for that structure. Mm. And I... But I find that most people, given that, are more open to going down that path. Yeah, I think I, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, I, it's funny because it's almost like it would be a case, almost like a 12-step kind of case where I can offer it to someone else as long as that person is sure that I myself am identified with what it is that I'm seeing in them. You know, if I'm able to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm par excellence, you know, I'm, I'm number one, you know, then I can give it to you kind of like an alcoholic can talk to another alcoholic because there's no, there's no judgment there. There's no criticism. What there is, is there's an opportunity for acceptance. Absolutely. Well, uh, are there underlying attitudes that cause us to be dicks? I mean, beliefs? Is it cultural? Is it life experience? I I, I think it's probably all of the above. I mean, I explore it in a lot of different vignettes, and I find that this comes from uh, relationships. This comes from early histories where you didn't feel like you were accepted as you were. I think this comes from uh, oftentimes jumping through hoops for other people and not really getting to experience an authentic uh, sense of self. Um, I think that the primary attitude that it often lands in is, is the it's not you, it's me. You know, it, it's not me, it's you, I should say. You know, it's not, I, I, I'm turning the tables wishfully there. And, and, and the primary attitude of the dick is the person who walks around, you know, hurting other people without really realizing it. Because remember, it's a psychological defense. So I'm hurting other people, not really aware that I'm doing anything wrong, and then I'm shocked. So the dick is the person who's uh, really, who experiences uh, unprovoked attacks that are actually counterattacks. There's a brilliant, brilliant quote that I love, and it, it says, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find at some point in time we have made decisions based on self, which later put, put us in a position to be hurt. What that means is I'm walking around selfish in my own head and I'm stepping on other people's toes and they're retaliating, but I don't realize that. I don't recognize it. I'm so caught up in myself, I don't recognize that these are not attacks. These are counterattacks. So the real attitude is an attitude of it's, however it develops, of it's not safe to be vulnerable. It's not safe to take to account for my own part in any problem, especially if it's in a relationship. Well, you know, you make an interesting point because I used to think before the book that there was intent with Dickery. Mm. That, and maybe there's not. Maybe it's not with intent. It's just how you react. I, I love I love that you're saying that because I, 
as much as it might sound, you know, if you looked at this book, if you got it as a gift, you know, for your birthday, uh, you probably wouldn't take it as a great compliment. But really, the the whole point of the book is a call for compassion. It's a compassion. It's a plea for compassion. It's a plea to try to understand other people's bad behavior, so that we can understand that as long as we keep attacking that person, as long as it's uh, you know, terribly unsafe for that person to reveal other parts of themselves, they're going to keep having to be cornered into this really, really bad, offensive, provocative uh, behavior. It's a. I know it's a hard. It's a really, really hard request. It's a hard request to ask somebody who's in the presence of someone who's acting like a dick to try to understand the pain or the fear that might be driving that behavior. Well, it is when you're the person receiving the the negative comments and the hurt feelings and all of that. It's really hard to say, okay, what's going on with that person? That's right. That's right. And that's why really. The, again, you know that that is the ultimate plea for compassion in a bigger sense. And fortunately, I'm not actually asking anybody to do that. What I'm really asking is I'm asking the dick to have some compassion for her or himself, so that they can drop the weaponry of dickery and start having compassion for themselves. It's you're absolutely right. There's no way you're going to have compassion for someone who's walloping you with bad behavior. Never, nor should you. You know that would be accepting uh, abuse. So, so of course we're not calling for that. But we are calling for people who will read this book to say, "I am call. I am inviting hostility. I am going to have to learn to deal with my own." vulnerability, my sadness, my pain, my fear, I'm going to have to accept those things about myself if I'm going to ever, ever allow anybody else to start to try to accept me on different footing. That's a pretty tall glass of water to take a drink from. It is. Uh, it, it is. Well, and so that's why, you know, the person who, who the person who picked up the book has all of, you know, what, 222 pages you know, and lots and lots and lots and lots of exercises, as you said, to it, it, at least contemplate whether or not they can start to create some chinks in the armor of Dickory. Well, and that's the first step mm-hmm. is to try. And, yeah. you know, maybe the first step is to just admit, self-identify. Am I a dick? Mm, Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, it's so easy to other identify when it comes to this, right? It's so easy. I mean, it it just, you know, I live in New York City and, uh, you know, we're, we're in some pretty challenging times right now. So, you know, people... You know, people are on edge. You know, there's lots of ways to see other people's bad behaviors and to justify, uh, you know, seeing that person as someone that we're going to categorize as as dick. And uh, it's really hard. It's really hard to 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 have compassion and, and, and even consider that a lot of other people are going through some very scary, painful times right now. Well, you make a really good point because in these times of uncertainty, our fear is accelerated. More often, we're we're straddling that fight or flight mode, and it's just part of our. We don't know what the day is going to hold, and I know New York has had been through some really crucial times, but even yeah. in Dallas, Texas, yeah. we're 
things are not going as we had hoped they would or wanted they would. And certainly that doesn't bring out the best in people. It makes us more, I notice when I'm afraid, that's when I retaliate really quickly. That's when I push out. That's when I am not the lady that I want to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, here. <laughs> so, you know, we're going to talk about a lot more. We're going to take a break. But when we come back, I want to hear, I want to help people understand, that number one, that they can quit and kind of give them an idea of what they need to do to quit. And I guess the biggest acknowledgement is, I hate to say this, but it's something that you have to do for yourself. Yeah. Nobody else can do it for you. Yep. We'll be back after these messages. It's merging Have you ever wondered where the terms used in computer speak originated? The word cookie, that packet of information that travels between a browser and web server, is named after the fortune cookie, a cookie with an embedded message. Rebooting the computer is literally pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. The name Google was originally coined in 1938 by Milton Sirota, nephew of mathematician Edward Kasner, during a discussion of large numbers. Uh, Google is the number one, followed by 100 zeros. The word Yahoo was originally invented by Jonathan Swift and used in his book Gulliver's Travels. It's a derogatory term for a person who is repulsive in appearance. Yahoo founders Jerry Yang and David Philo selected the name because they considered themselves Yahoos. It's I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words you never heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Word. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com slash radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. I'm back. I've got Mark Borg with me, and we're talking about how you don't be a dick. And before mm. break, we talked about how it's really up to you. You're the only one that can change that behavior. And it sounds like, Mark, that starts with self-acceptance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, all of this... All of this behavior is really a cover-up. It's a cover-up. It's a, you know, it's kind of a bait and switch. Like there I am. I'm so worried about you seeing this dark shadow of a self that I keep hidden that I feel like if you knew the real me, you wouldn't love me. You wouldn't like me. You wouldn't care for me. And so 
I, the cover up becomes this puffing up. It becomes this kind of defense that actually becomes part of my character. And I, I define character as the sum total of psychological defense. So my character becomes this rigid, rigid version of myself, this inflexible way of being in the world that doesn't allow me to show my real, true, deeper, authentic sense of self to other people. And so what other people are reacting to is not the real me. They're reacting to all these behavioral, uh, these behaviors and habits and behaviors that become routines. And so, you know, it really character, some total of psychological defense, not the real me, but all the various really intricate, complicated, twisted ways that I protect myself from being hurt from being scared, and ultimately from being known. So the answer is the opposite, right? The answer is to, to, to know myself, to accept myself, to accept my vulnerability, to accept my need for human contact. And that's hard to do. Mm. I mean, to really say, it's okay if I'm vulnerable. Yeah. And I, it is just as hard, I think, for women as it is men. I don't think that's it goes either way. But just to say, you know, I'm vulnerable, and, and I, what if you don't like me? Or what if you think I did a terrible time, and you tell people, don't be on her radio show? <laughs> <laughs> we all have those thoughts, oh, right? God. You know, it's so funny you said that. I, I, I have such deep compassion for that because I, I, I really believe that somehow some part of each one of us got stuck on the playground at about – I don't know, maybe in preschool or kindergarten with that with that with that burning question that we want to ask all the other kids, which is, do you like me? It's just it's so quiet. It's so soft. It's so real. It's so it's such a longing. And, you know, every single time I think throughout the rest of our life, that voice still is there. And whether we're the toughest person in the world in our exterior, whether we're open and free flowing, I still believe that we all want to ask each other that question and have the other person throw their arm around us and, and, and really affirm our value. Absolutely. And I have found working with my clients, it's easier for them to say something like, well, what don't you like about me? Mm. Than it is to say, what do you like about me? I really love that. I, I, I really love the, the, the homing in on that because, um, you know, one of the one of the primary tools that I offer uh, on on the road to self-acceptance, which is also the road of, you know, non-dickery um, it, 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 it's this, um, it's one of my favorite quotes. And the quote is not all inventory taking is done in red ink. And oh. what that, right. And what that means <laughs> is exactly what you just said. Like, Hey, I know it's, I know you think you're here in therapy or psychoanalysis or some real deep in, insight behavioral work. And I know that you come in with what we call a presenting problem, right? It's a problem. You want to fix it. But few people think that one of the most important assets on the road to fixing our problems is actually doing an inventory and finding out what assets, gifts, talents, and skills we have to use to work through our problems. You know, like we have to know what our good qualities are in order to work through our bad ones. So, you know, I, I, I really I, I, I offer inventory as a royal road to self-acceptance. 
As long and as the inventory you, isn't just all like I'm so horrible, you know, like <laughs> right. Well, that's you know, I find when you when I try to get people to do a self inventory, you know, and it's simple as tell me three good things about you. Mm. Um, well, um, um, well, <laughs> yeah. You know, so let me help you. Let me give you one. You got a great sense of humor. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, I do. You know, and sometimes you got to give them that second one before they can jump in there and think of that third. Why is it so hard? Uh, well, I think, again, because once you start, first of all, I think that, you know, we also have, you know, the seven deadly sins that start with pride, right? So I oh, think that yeah. there Right. So I think that we're also in a culture. Um, so I'm married to a Japanese woman and uh, we have two kids and uh, two two beautiful daughters. And I I learned something very, um, uh, very p- profound and important when I first started going to Japan with my daughter, my, my younger daughter, my older daughter. I mean, and who, you know, like, oh, my God, she's so cute. She has this incredible shock of black hair. I mean, she just was the cutest kid. And people would come up and say, oh, your daughter's so cute. And I'd say, oh, thank you. Yeah, she's so. And my wife was was so embarrassed. And I'm like, what, what, what? She's like, oh, you you never, you know, you, when somebody tells you, you have a beautiful, you know, charming, cute kid, you say, Oh no, 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 not, not, not really. You know, like what, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, but culturally there is such a, you know, and I, and we have it in our culture too. I mean, there is this sense of a, a balance, I think between pride in the sense of, you know, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm arrogant and I'm better than you and blah, blah, blah. And just the pride of being able to, or the humility, I think it's humility to be able to acknowledge your gifts and talents and skill. In fact, I think it's false pride to deny that we have these wonderful qualities. But because we're in a culture that doesn't really understand this very well and certainly doesn't teach us to have a uh, balanced uh, self-esteem that includes being able to, to, to you know, um, really uh, accept affirmation, it's it's really a very tr- it's a conundrum. I mean, I, and I I always think about the first law of power from Robert Greene's book. It is never outshine the master, and that also means you have to be careful. You know, be careful about how you how you uh, bring forth your assets. I think it's a very complicated matter. Well, I think it is, too. I think it's a fine line that you walk. And, you know, you can just go one foot over, and mm. then you're arrogant. That's right. And, yeah. and you go one foot under, and you don't have any self-esteem or self-confidence. That's right. That's, that's right. So it's very tricky, and that's why I offer inventory uh, as a, you know, as a as a, a road, as a part of the solution. Because I'm not asking anybody to beat their chest, you know. I'm not asking anybody to, you know, to proclaim their, uh, you know, their unique uh, specialness. I'm just asking for what you said, you know, those those three qualities. And if you need help getting started, fine, absolutely. Well, sometimes I think, you know, when people can't give those three qualities about themselves, it's almost like they're inviting you to treat them poorly. Mm. Yeah, I think I think so, too. And I think it's it's one of the ironies of what we're what we're referring to as dickery, that it, it it's it's so diametrically it's the it's actually the inverse of what we think it is. You know, we think that the dick is that er- tend to I think stereotypically think that the dick is the arrogant one. We think that the dick is the uh, you know we think that the dick is the king of the world or the queen. You know, but really, if you believe in what uh, you know the DSM five now 
thinks of as personality disorders and you put narcissistic personality disorder in the list and you really look at the symptomatology of a narcissist, then what you really get is this is not an arrogant, chest-beating, you know, uh, self-inflated person. That's just the exterior. That's what they look like. What they really are is the absolute lowest depth of insecurity. Probably have been treated badly their whole life. That's right. That's right. Uh, we yeah. all know domestic violence is it goes around in cycles. Um, so there's certainly from that community standpoint and where you have a, a great deal of experience. Mm. I think that plays into it. Absolutely. I think that that is such an important point. And if you, you know, all of the all of the personality disorders are considered to be influenced by the environment, that being the upbringing. And so that's where I think we can really see that if somebody is traumatized, if their if their esteem is traumatized, if their sense of efficacy is traumatized, if their sense of worth this trauma, then you're going to see it manifesting throughout, you know, their upbringing and into adulthood. You know, they, they manifest in exactly the opposite way of what the actual trauma is. You know, the trauma is a, is a deep, deep wound to the self-esteem. But the manifestation is this incredible inflation of ego. So, or, you know, so it's, uh, it's a, again, you know, it's such a conundrum that I felt like I really had to carefully write this book in a way that was accessible, that was um, uh, you know, caring of the person who, um, you know, the, to, 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 to really care for this person, not as a narcissist, not as a, a, a jerk, but as a wounded soul who needed in, needs incredible love and care and acceptance. Well, I think you make such a good point talking about emotional trauma because, you know, part of the, the work I do is with people that have a dysregulated brain. Mm. And I always say there's four things that puts a brain into a dysregulated state. One is ge one is genetics. Mm. Two is physical head trauma. And mm. we've all hit our head. Did mm. you have a sibling? I mean, come on. Yeah, right. We've all, we've <laughs> yeah, all hit right. our head. Did you ride a motorcycle? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or did you surf? <laughs> did you I mean, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> we've all hit our head. But the third is emotional trauma, mm. and I don't wish it on anybody. But as you live and as you live fully, you're gonna experience emotional trauma, and that trauma lives in your subconscious. You know, we'll have that traumatic thought. It'll appear in our brain. It's like, oh, it, it's it's my, I, I don't want to think about that right now. We'll push it down. Yeah. But because it lives in our subconscious, it just ruminates. Yeah. And it goes, it loops. It loops round and round and round. Yeah. And then, then it comes back up. So for people that have had a, a fair amount of emotional trauma, do you think it's harder to move past that, Dickory? I do. Um, but I also think that there are um, what, again, I think we probably as therapists um, experience before somebody, uh, you know, makes it into our door is that that person most likely has hit some kind of an emotional bottom. So, 
again, sort of a conundrum or an irony is that a lot of times it's it's when that person is somehow able to get in touch with the emotional trauma, whether it's you know, it's not necessarily, oh, I've been emotionally traumatized, but maybe it's manifesting in relationship. Maybe it, it has resulted in losing jobs or losing friends or losing uh, lovers or, you know, it's that person. And oftentimes those experiences that qualify as what 12 uh, step people call a bottom that actually can result in, in, in a call for help. You know, I, I, cause I think we need to be able, I also think of being a dick as a call for help. So, you know, and sometimes that call for help that goes through the dickery, that goes through the dick behavior leads right to what you're describing as the emotional trauma and that someone can finally hear it and let someone like you and someone like me actually, um, facilitate growth and, and, and change. And as we keep coming back to self-acceptance. Well, and self-acceptance in my world relates to a self-regulating brain. Right. Um, yes. And, you know, because I find that people that are have a lot of emotional trauma or a lot of stress. Do you know anybody that hasn't been majorly stressed out in the last few months? Uh, no, I haven't run across anybody like that yet. <laughs> no, I mean, when we get really stressed out, our body, you know, those adrenal glands start kicking out all that cortisol. Mm -hmm. And that cortisol gets in the gray matter, the white matter of the brain. Maybe we make decisions differently. Maybe we process information differently. Yeah. So it, it really does impact us. And sometimes, you know, you mentioned trauma. And to me, Trauma is front lobe shutdown. Mm. And when those frontal lobes shut down, when the left hemisphere of the brain can't plan it out and organize it, and the right side of the brain can't calm the brain down, did you know that two-thirds of the cells on the right side of the brain are always scanning for danger? Mm. Yeah, that, I mean, it makes so much sense because, you know, you come at it from the brain and I come at it with, from the mind. And, and the book is really a, a, about the way the mind operates and so as, as a manifestation of brain functioning. So it's really interesting because you're also, you know, putting the, the physiological component to something that I come back to a lot in the book, which is um, uh, the psychological defense mechanism most most associated with trauma, which is dissociation, which is, you know, a, a, a real cutting off of experience so that I am not able to process the emotion that goes with the experience and therefore I don't have all the information I need to actually function. So so it's really interesting that you're able to put the brain uh, you know, mechanisms and functioning together with what I'm talking about in the book of uh, mind and, and especially psychological defense to come to, up with this whole um, you know, kind of case study in using this behavior to really reduce our uh, our functioning, you know, and, and, and our experience of ourselves in the world. Well, why do you think so many of us will let the dicks in our lives stay there? Because, because we do. Yeah. And I think because, like I said about the family holiday party, I really believe that we become accustomed to just letting the dick, you know, be the one to the scapegoated for all the things that go wrong. I, I, I work with couples and I and I oftentimes, you know, we'll see a couple where it's clear that, you know, one person is, you know, really, 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 really acting much more poorly than the other one. And occasionally I will ask the one who's not asking so poorly. I'm like, why do you keep allowing your wife or your husband to be scapegoated for everything that goes wrong in your relationship? 
You know, I, I, in other words, like, come on, if there's going to be a dick, you know, there's going to be two dicks. There's also, I, I'll even go so far as to say there's, there's no such thing as a solo dick. I mean, we are, we, all of us who get to feel like we're not the dick in any one situation, we should be thanking our lucky stars for the dick who's willing and able to look like they're so pivotal to every problem we have in the family and the job and, you know, in, in our coupledom. Well, I think I say it a different way because I tell everybody, well, it takes two to tango, mm-hmm. and you're saying the same thing. I it am. takes There's two dicks involved. That's right. Well, And the dick is, uh, I think, uh, looks sometimes like they break that model, uh, that, 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 that philosophy of two to tango, but I believe it wholeheartedly. They just look like it. It's not true. In fact, I, I could tell you, it's a kind of little scary, but I, I have a couple. I mean, I'm seeing people you know, on Skype and, and Zoom and all these kinds of things. And, you know, they, there was this couple that for a long time, you know, one of them looked so calm and so peaceful. And all of a sudden I get this call, you know, from, from, from one of them saying, hey, I just got stabbed. I'm like, what? Whoa. Stabbed. You stabbed. Like, okay. Well, now we finally, now we finally get to the two to tangle part. What it really was, was that somebody was just, I'm done. I'm done being scapegoated. I'm done looking like, you know, I'm, 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 you know, the one who's the, 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 the problem. And I'm going to invite this other person into a much, much, much more exaggerated state of being. It was really about communication. It was really about being heard. It was really, it was dramatic. It was a very, very, very minor. It was like, I mean, there, there's not even a scar. But, but the point was that I think if you get slotted too much into a role and you feel so isolated, especially if you're in a couple and you're being used, you're being used as a you know, scapegoat for everything that's wrong in the relationship, I think eventually it can get pretty, pretty scary. I think you're right. And, you know, you mentioned communication. And so many times we all, we get so judgmental. And we criticize and we blame people. And how is any positive interaction going to occur when you're when you're coming at it from that context? Yeah. Well, you know, again, I really I mean, I would go so far as to suggest that the the dick book is somewhat about, you know, because I'm really a relationship guy. I love, you know, really I'm totally biased. Like I think relationship, I think we're formed in the context of relationship. I love like the Edward Tronic stuff with the rupture and repair. And I love the the, the Daniel Stern. And I, and I love a lot of these people who are talking about early formation of self. And like you said, you know, emotional regulation and dysregulation. I love that stuff. And so I think, you know, I really, really, really do think that a lot of times it just, we, you know, we have to be able to reach each other. We have to find ways to, 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 to be reached. And if we're calling for help and we're not being heard, then I think that the call will get louder and louder and louder. Well, do you think sometimes if we're calling for help and we're not getting heard, that maybe we're not calling the right way? I do believe that. I, I, I do. I mean, that, that kind of goes back to, I think, the very beginning of our conversation. I do think that using dickery as a call for help, unfortunately for the dick, who, again, I am going to love and care for and, 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 and welcome and be as hospitable as I can, but still, 
it, it, you're right. It's a very, very ineffective way of calling for help because, yes, you're calling attention upon yourself, but because of the way you're doing it, nobody's really able to discern that what you're calling for is help. I mean, we know this of adolescent and adolescent bad behavior. We, we tend to kind of get a sense that, oh, yeah, that's probably not a horrible kid. It's just a bad behavior or, you know, that, that, that they're using because they're not getting the proper amount of attention. We don't, we're not usually quite so compassionate for adults, though. Well, no, and I'll help parents say, well, you know, he or she can't help it. They're not getting enough sleep, mm. you know. And, well, whose who's responsibility is that? Because I raised, <laughs> I had two boys, and they would love to not get enough sleep. And they would love <laughs> to live off of sugar. Oh, so, yeah. So, you know, yeah. there's some lifestyle changes, too. But, That's you know, right. we, before we've got a little bit of time, and I think what everybody, I hope at this point, wants to know is how do you quit being a dick? Well, again, the, the real, we've already come to it many times, and I have a lot of tools that will help you along the way. There's inventory, there's proclamation, there's self-affirmations, but really it's the simplest thing in the world. You learn to accept yourself as you are. And you take that as an experiment out into the world in one relationship at a time. You start testing your model of acceptance. You start taking your own self-acceptance into other relationships and running the experiment to find out if you accept yourself as you are, then you have a great, much greater capacity to to accept the world as it is, which means you're going to be better able to accept other people as they are. And this creates what I suppose we could call a virtuous cycle. The more acceptance of self, the more likely you are to accept other people. The more that you are accepting yourself and other people, the more able you are to accept circumstances as they are. And that doesn't mean that we're happy, say, that we're all on lockdown for the last four months. I don't mean that. But it does mean that we're able to accept that we're on lockdown and then come out with greater solutions to bear it. So that really the start of the end of Dickery is accepting ourselves as we are. That, so, that is it. So if I were to sum, sum that up into one word, I might say fear. Yeah, I think that's right. The fear of going back to the playground, going back to kindergarten, going back to preschool, the fear that when you ask the world, i.e. anybody in it, do you like me? The fear is that the world will say absolutely not. And so instead of asking you react to what you assume is the answer, and you inadvertently isolate yourself, not only from the world, but from everybody in it, and ultimately, as we keep saying, from yourself. Yeah, it's really hard. I, I have a client, and my biggest wish for that client is that they would be as nice to themselves as they are to other people. Yeah. And, yeah. and why is, you know, we, I mean, we've all experienced times where we're down on ourselves and we get those little ants, those automatic negative thoughts running through our head and we let them run. But I do think that people need, they need advice, just like the advice, don't be a dick. Yeah. There is not one person that didn't walk in my office and see that book that <laughs> did not identify with it. Men, women, uh, children, yeah. I mean, it, it didn't matter. We all know what that is. And I think that you've really, you put yourself out in the book, and you own it. 
that's the hard part. You own it. Yeah, I wrote this book. Oh, God. Well, it's been a real journey. You know, it's a real, it's been such, such a journey. And again, it, it's a journey of self-acceptance. It's a journey that there's no way when I was sitting there at that table in the East Village, barking at my partner, barking at my co-author, barking at somebody that I really love, that there's not a that I saw myself in action. And the part I didn't tell you yet, and I'll, maybe this is the, you know, one of the one of the finales here is. I looked over a couple of tables. I was using foul language. I was out of control. I was using the F word. I was, man, I was so, so, and I don't tend to do that, just so you know. Um, and uh, there I was. Of course, I looked two tables over, and there were some neighbors. Oh, wow. With kids, my own kids' age, it was perfect. It was perfect. It was exactly what I was describing earlier as the bottom. Boy, you you did save the best part of that story for last, <laughs> didn't you? You really did. So, uh, Mark, if people want to learn more, if they want to get the book, how can what how can they find you? Oh, they can find me. Okay, so Central Recovery Press is my publisher, and you can find the book there. It's also on Amazon. I think everywhere else they sell books. Uh, I have two blogs on psychology today. One is called Irrelationship. The other is called Relationship Sanity. And if you just type in Mark B. Borg Jr., you'll find me all over the place. <laughs> well, that's great because I, I think that I'm going to start reading your blogs. I'm glad to know that they're out there. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, because if I can learn just a little bit from each one that I read, and I have a good feeling that I will, mm. that will that will help me because I have decided I am not ever going to be a dick again. Me too. <laughs> now I don't know if that's I don't know how I always say make goals that are realistic. <laughs> I don't know how realistic that is, but it certainly it it is my goal, and I. I again, I appreciate you so much. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Black, black. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify. 